Today, I want to talk about aliens. Why aliens? Well, for this podcast, I don't intend for it to be politically divisive, emotionally charged, political rhetoric, or anything like that. But I do expect it to provide commentary on just the government and society in general. And I wanted to start with something that's not really political, at least not yet. I assume that should alien discussions become mainstream or the federal government would, you know, comes out acknowledging that there are extraterrestrials, there will be differences of opinion probably along political lines on what should be the course of action, what to do, contact versus not contact, defensive posturing versus cooperation. I mean, who knows, right? We can all imagine how different a bunch of nonsense we're going to get. So, I just want to talk about it, because at this point, it's not controversial, yet the government is becoming involved in the quote-unquote UFO space in a way that we really haven't seen, especially in, you know, the lifetime of a millennial. If you ever pay attention to the UFO phenomenon, or whatever you want to call it, I'm just going to call it the UFO phenomenon for lack of a better description, you may know a lot of the history of it. And if you don't follow it, well, I'm probably not going to give you a very adequate history of it, but I would encourage you to go glance around the internet for it. There's some pretty good documentaries out there lately that have touched on this subject and kind of can bring you up to speed on sort of the history of the United States government's position and, you know, discussion of the UFO topic, you know, from right after World War II up until the present day. And what brings me to sort of this topic, again, if you're paying attention to what's going on nowadays, is we're going to have a disclosure pretty soon of some sort from a number of different agencies in the Department of Defense space, but not just limited to the Department of Defense, on what they know about some of these events of the UFO phenomenon, which they call UAP, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, I will get to, you know, the language and nomenclature issues about why do we have different words for different things. Um, and again, this falls right into that theme of government-based commentary or discussion. And so there's kind of a hard, it's a hard topic to know where to start. And a lot of times I like to start with what we know and work backwards. Right? So what we know and what's triggering all the current movement, for lack of a better word, was the release of some Navy videos and some recent acknowledgement by Department of Defense and other government officials that 
these aerial phenomena that they have encountered are indeed truly unknown. Or at least that's the official line, right? And so we'll get into that. And I want to clarify and disclaim a little bit when I say things like that and make it seem like we may not officially accept what the official word is from the government on something, is that I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I believe generally that major big conspiracies are impossible because too many people know and there's too much individual profit to be made by individuals to keep something quiet that they don't want to keep quiet. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been conspiracies. Um, and really, we would need to have a debate on what exactly qualifies as a conspiracy in the terms of conspiracy theories. For example, you know, some of the 9-11 conspiracy theories that some of those buildings were brought down by explosions that were not the result of aircraft. While the science and some of the observations and data may you know, not rule out that there could have been some other mechanism for bringing those buildings down, what you have to be able to conceive is not the science or the possibility, it's how do you make it happen. How do you get explosives in a 30 to 100 story building without people seeing it? And if you ever see how someone rigs a building to blow, whether it's engineers or whoever's in there doing it, it's not exactly clandestine, it's not exactly hidden. And because there isn't an attempt to hide it, but if you imagine an attempt to plant explosives over an entire building with the intent of demolishing it in a very particular way, the installers of those bombs would be very limited on where they can put them. And that limitation reduces flexibility and increases the ability of getting caught and the deniability. And it just, at some point, the odds of being able to even practically do what is being theorized to have been done, it becomes nonsensical. Um, that's generally why I don't subscribe to conspiracy theories, because when they get too big, you know, it's, it's not that they're too big to fail, they become too big to conceive, to succeed, right? To be able to conceive something that big and then, then succeed at actually achieving the goal. It's just not possible. Um, and you can just imagine, just to wrap this portion of the discussion up, a 9-11 type conspiracy, like blowing the lid off of that would get someone millions, I'm talking millions, maybe even in the billions of dollars, if they could credibly blow the top off of that conspiracy. And it's unlikely they would face any kind of repercussions. Definitely not from the federal government. A whistleblower of that nature blowing the top off of a... wouldn't. It couldn't legally have been you know, a military operation. So if it was a military operation, there would be no rules against disclosing it, or more appropriately, there's nothing that the military could do uh, 
to prosecute someone for disclosing something that the military wasn't legally allowed to do in the first place. I mean, and that would kind of go for just about anyone. There isn't anyone who really has the legal authority to do that. So anyone who came forward in a whistleblower-type situation would be 100% protected, at least from a legal standpoint. And so the, the risk to that person would then be, you know, are there literally in this conspiracy that we're imagining you know, agents who would go around killing people who knew the truth or who were threatening to tell the truth. Because all that would happen at that point is just they would begin to leave breadcrumb trails back to the true perpetrators, the true masterminds. And it would be counterproductive to probably begin murdering people who were talking out about it. And so just the logic and the practical considerations of that kind of conspiracy, and even keeping it a secret and then preventing someone from later coming out with it, um, just doesn't fit the facts and the reality in human nature. And on the UFO subject, we will actually see this play out as we talk about it, because that's kind of exactly what happened. And the difference, there's a very specific difference when it came to some of the people who haven't spoke out about what they believe they saw in these you know, UFO events versus the ones who did and the timing of their disclosure. And it's actually very interesting. It follows the logic that I was just explaining when it comes to conspiracy theories very well. So a cover-up is not a conspiracy theory. And by cover-up, again, we have to agree on some language. And that, you know, a cover-up is, you know, for example, if we think about the raid to kill Osama bin Laden, right? Some of it was made public, and there were some issues with that mission that left secret equipment, different things in different places that had to be destroyed. And there are other scenarios where military hardware somewhere has gone down. We don't want anyone to know about it. We don't want anyone to get their hands on it. And we blow it up, and then we pretend like it never happened. That's a cover-up. And it has a purpose. Well, there's multiple purposes for cover-ups, I guess you could say. But that kind of cover-up is like protecting an information cover-up versus protecting disclosure cover-up. And those are kind of a, two different things. We can talk about those as we get into this in terms of who's motivated to do what and why, controlling information for different purposes. And that's really where a lot of conspiracy theories sort of unravel is the motivation to conceal. Um, because not everybody involved in any aspect of really anything has the same motivation for what they're doing. I mean, take a military operation. You have some commanders who are very, very, very concerned about exposing vulnerabilities or capabilities to an enemy because they don't want to put their men in harm's way, where on the exact same uh, event, you could have manufacturers or researchers who don't want that equipment found because they don't want the enemy or even a rival company or someone to get their hands on it to be able to copy it or be able to engineer solutions and capabilities around it. So there's multiple motivations to keep things secret that could fall under an umbrella cover-up. And you really just see these 
generally like in classification regimes with the federal government and documents. I mean, you can take an innocuous kind of scheme like HIPAA, you know, the Health Information Protectability Accessibility Act, you know, whatever, if I got those acronyms exactly right. There's a whole scheme in there. But who's allowed to have what information? Who's allowed to disclose information? And what measures have to be taken to protect information? And generally, all of that is under one single motivation, and that's individual privacy. And so, you know, which in of itself is a different motivation for concealment and control of information than anything in the national security realm. But, you know, theoretically, you know, you wouldn't want your adversaries to know, like, what vaccinations your troops have, which would then lead you to into a concealment of medical information that is not motivated by personal privacy, but again, motivated by sort of national security and defense motivations. But it's the same thing. So not to beat a dead horse on that, cover-ups themselves can exist. They can be through lots of different things and for different motivations and then cover a lot of different entities with multiple competing motivations at times. So again, back to aliens, UFOs. And in order to have this discussion, we got to have some ground rules, right? we got to set some left and right bounds in terms of what we agree upon as being true and work from there, right? Um, what I'm not going to talk about, other than in passing, are abduction stories. Because the difference between a lot of the evidence that we see that the government comments on is fundamentally different from abduction stories, mainly because of the laws of physics. What we see, generally, when we government is referring to different UFO events. We're talking about phenomena that seem to have technology beyond what humans are known to have currently, but not technology that is beyond our understanding of the laws of physics. You know, Neil deGrasse or um, Dr. Michu they would refer to these as the difference between a science problem and an engineering problem. Like, we know the science that would allow this technology to exist. We don't know how to engineer it and make it happen. Versus, we don't know the science that would allow this to actually happen. And in our understanding of the universe, if this is indeed happening, then our understanding of the universe and our understanding of physics is wrong. And just one example of that is a number of times abductee stories will say things like they floated through walls, you know, like literally like a ghost almost, like a disassociation of matter as it flowed through a wall, even when there was a door right there that was available. I mean, that's just one example, right? We can understand speed, acceleration, even high ones. I mean, we can even theorize time travel, but the disassociation of matter from, you know, something like one phase dimension to another 
is not something that our current understanding of physics allows us to accept as a theoretical possibility. And so I'm not going to talk about abduction theories, and they go sometimes down super rabbit holes. Sometimes they're very I mean, shallow experiences, for lack of a better term. They don't have a lot of background or context to them, and they're just not helpful in this discussion. And so we're just not going to talk about abduction stories. I'll qualify that with, if indeed we were to ever conclude positively that aliens are visiting the planet, and aliens could mean a number of things, um, then it's you know likely that some of these abduction stories may be true. They just not may not be true in the way that the abductees remember them. Uh, it's kind of like just you know kidnappings, things like that. Uh, you get into like the court of the law, the way memory works. Those kind of experiences play all kinds of games with memory that a simple sighting, you know, of a strange craft in the air doesn't do, right? Nobody has any photographic evidence of their abduction, right? We don't have that. We have photographic, you know, evidence of alleged UFO type scenarios. You know, a pilot seeing, you know, a band of saucers does not have the same psychological impact on memory type things as someone who, you know, claims to be abducted out of their bed and experimented on and traveled to different planets and things like that. So again, we'll skip the abductions and, you know, we're going to just stay with the UFOs. And again, not to say that abductions and UFOs don't go hand in hand, but with a UFO, we're talking literally about a witnessed flying object that we don't know what it is versus a personal experience that someone believes that they have. So assumptions. What we can agree upon that is pretty much, I don't want to say fact. I'm not going to, I'm going to try to stay away from the word fact because the word fact has been really stretching, being twisted and manipulated lately. I don't want to use it. Fact means some very different things. And there's some actually psychological aspects to what exactly is a fact. So instead of using the word fact, what I'm going to say is accepted observation. And accepted observation means simply this. Someone claims to have seen something, and we accept that claim to be true. I'll say that again. Accepted observation. Someone has seen or witnessed something, and we, as society, as human beings, or whatever, we are accepting that claim to be true. And, we, and that acceptance can be based on a number of things. So, for example, with the recent Navy photographs that were released in videos and interviews, we're accepting that those videos are true because, one, we have video evidence, which it could be faked, um, right? But there's enough criteria or indices or indications of reliability that allows us to conclude 
at least just for the sake of discussion, that these things were actually witnessed, right? Accepted observation does not mean we are accepting the conclusion on what it was that was saw. We are accepting that something was in fact seen, and it, what was seen is as described. That's what accepted observation means. Um, another example would be some photographs. There's a few photographs of different UFOs in different scenarios, not even just recently, but going back in years, that we can't, you know, positively rule out that they were hoaxes or fakes or fabricated in some manner. But in these instances and the ones we're going to refer to, the indications are that they are reliable sources and that they are not fakes. Again, and that goes into another thing. You know, it goes into the overall credibility of who's saying it. For the most part, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Navy or the U.S. Armed Forces doesn't have a lot of motivation to make up stories in a classified environment. And we have to realize that all of these sightings, they come to light in the classified environment first, and then they make their way out of the classified environment. Um, you know, with the exception of things that are also seen by the public. But that's not what these were. You know, and for the most part, uh, the ones that have been seen by the public generally have some sort of photographic evidence or enough eyewitness accounts that, again, we can accept those observations as true. So the first thing you really need to understand is sort of the history, because it's kind of weird, really. And by weird, I really just mean inconsistent. Um, so as we move right forward with the accepted observation parameters that we discussed, people are seeing things in the sky that literally are not or are literally unexplained. There is not a good explanation for them, and only recently has the government come forth and not offered some non-nonsensical explanation. And I say non-nonsensical because there has been some really nonsensical explanations offered, right? The swamp gas joke wasn't hyperbole. Like, the Air Force literally tried to claim that one of the most significant UFO sightings in modern history was some swamp gas. Uh, yeah, there's not much more to say about that. And so, where to begin? Again, working backwards. It's interesting that there's this gap. So, the, the recent Navy videos were taken in 2014. There's been more sightings as recently as 2019. Um, not only were there photos from Navy pilots, there was a drone swarm that was around some Navy ships, and even a cruise liner saw these things out there in the ocean, you know. And so, if we just take an example of one of these, like let's take the drone swarm. Now, I haven't seen any pictures of the drone swarm. I assume they're out there because there's people just standing there looking at them. They're in the ship's logs. We're talking about some drones, and it's still unclear as like what shape they took, 
what shape they were in or what form they were in or what kind of repulsion they have. You know, I haven't seen any descriptions of them saying that they're these big quadcopters, but I've also seen no descriptions of exactly what they were. There may be some out there. It doesn't seem that any news outlets or anything has been able to interview anyone from those ships in the same way that they have interviewed the Navy pilots who took uh, the videos in 2014. But we can pretty much accept as, you know, observation these drone swarms because not only were they seen by a numerous different naval personnel on different naval ships in the area, they were also seen by civilian cruise liner personnel who were in the vicinity. So they were there. And what makes them, you know, unidentifiable and therefore mysterious is that they were so far out from the coastline, you know, hundreds of miles, that they could not have been flown from the shore out there and then back, at least not with any known technology. And, you know, to even add on to that capability issue is that they just were there for a couple hours, uh, maybe even longer. It's unclear exactly how long. I'm sure the Navy has some better detailed information on it, but... You know, in order to fly a drone for two hours, you know, it's got to be something with wings, at least from a human capability standpoint. There's no quadcopter uh, in a standard drone form that even the military has available that has a flight time of longer than 30 minutes. Any drones that go past 30 minutes at this point really are either powered by gasoline and therefore pretty good size as well as make plenty of noise um, but also have wings because it just doesn't make any sense for most of the larger drones that you want to have a reconnoiter time of longer than 30 minutes they're usually not even quadcopters they're usually just a helicopter drone because it's more efficient and it's a lot easier to drive one set of rotors as opposed to driving four set of rotors when you're using a mechanical engine as opposed to electronic engines off of batteries. Anyway, the consensus is on those is that they were not conventional drones. They were around for too long to have been any known drone technology, and they were too far from shore to have been flown out there from someone standing on the shore, and there were no ships in the vicinity either. Now, sure, we can imagine some James Bondy type situation where there's some stealth submarine out there by some evildoers, but I mean, what were they doing? Just hanging around the Navy ships for no reason? Like, just a weird, just a weird scenario, even if the drones were operated by humans. Um, or some other government, like what what were they trying to observe, um, right? So that's just an example, right, of one of these more recent um, observations. And then you kind of go back through history, and you really kind of see a dead period, honestly. Like, I don't want to say dead period, because, I mean, we're only talking about for the most part, U.S. observations and the U.S. government's response to the UFO question. And so we don't have, um, you know, this discussion is not going to consider very much at all any UFO sightings from other governments and other languages and other locations. There, you know, I, I may mention later 
some UK sightings that involved US personnel, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll limit that discussion in just to a context as to what the United States government had in its information from direct participation from US personnel, not getting information filtered through another country or another country's personnel. And so we really don't see any what I would call mainstream or viral or anything like that, any other UFO phenomenon that really got a lot of attention until you get back into the 90s. You know, you had a big one over Phoenix. I mean, there was a few around in the 90s, especially the mid-90s. And so really, what you had there was almost a 20-year gap between uh, what we had in the 90s, like, again, the one in Phoenix and a couple others, and these 2014 interaction with the Navy. But we haven't had a public, non-military-involved UFO spectacle probably since the 90s. Um, you know, and that, 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 that's interesting you know, because really the advent of cell phones and phone cameras would lead you to think that we would have a massive, massive influx of UFOs, sightings everywhere, cell phones. We just don't see that in the data. Um, you know, the ones I have seen were off the coast of Florida. Um, there's one that was captured with some lights in the sky to me. That's almost absolutely likely to be flares. It's out there in a naval training area. If you ever sailed off the coast of Florida, there's an area on the chart that's out there that's a naval warfare training area, almost like a bombing range on land, but just in the ocean. And one thing that you routinely see over bombing ranges on land are flares. And I remember... In my personal experience growing up in the Midwest areas, uh, coming back from like a sports game during high school, and everyone's looking out the window of the buses because there were these lights floating in the sky. Well, they were 100% flares, and they're at the bomb range. And, I mean, it was just a perfectly reasonable explanation for what they were. Uh, high school students just didn't know what the hell flares were. Um, or that there was even a bombing range over there. Um, you know, that video, and you can hear people talking on the video of those lights in Florida off the coast, they were clearly not aware that they are staring straight out at a naval testing range uh, or the equivalent of a naval bombing range. And the way those uh, lights work in that video absolutely, in my view, represent flares. So I'm not going to... That's not what I would consider an accepted observance of an unknown. I think just about anyone who has ever seen positively the work of, you know, flares in a bombing zone area would absolutely look at those and come to the same conclusion. So I'm not going to consider that one to be an accepted observation of a UFO. I think there's a reasonable explanation for that based on location and uh, the description and, and just what they look like in general. And so that, that still doesn't answer the question, why don't we have more of those? Like, why are there not more pictures of things in the sky? People don't know what they are. Even if there are rational explanations for that, we just don't see this abundance of them. 
Um, now, I'm not a UFO researcher. I probably should have disqualified you know, myself a long time ago about that. You know, I'm not out there doing research on this every day. I'm working off of what I would call big events or events that got national attention, not regional, not local attention. Things big enough that have would force the U.S. government to comment on or big enough that the U.S. government would either be asked about or forced to take a position on. There's just not a ton of those running around easily identifiable you know, on the internet or anywhere else that has really happened uh, since cell phones have become prevalent. You know, and that's a data point to consider. We'll maybe elaborate that on a little bit more on that later. You know, and so you know, the 90s, you have a few, and then, you know, you go back in time, get into the 80s, there's still not a ton in the 80s, but there's a few around, you know, and it's really when you hit the 70s, 60s, 50s, it's, it's almost like as you go back in time, you get more and more UFO reportings, you know, and you got a whole, you know, you had the whole flying saucer mania, you know, that happened, and so now that we've kind of worked back from, you know, these current events that have really triggered uh, the U.S. government's new position on these things. So now let's go, let's flip the script, let's go back to the beginning and um, investigate and, and evaluate, consider the events that triggered the U.S. government's interest in things. And that was, you know, the whole flying saucer thing in the 50s and the late 40s, you know. And so we're going to start with Roswell, right? That's the that's the famous one. A lot of people consider that to be the start of the phenomenon. There were, or are, I suppose, examples of pre-Roswellian UFO sightings and saucers. You know, but it wasn't even just Roswell. Like, um... Roswell gets the fame mainly because of those ridiculous pictures, but I think the more credible um, accounts, you know, include the um, you know the pilots in Alaska that saw the flying saucers in formation. And then you even had another pilot who, like, wrote an article about how what an idiot the first guy probably was. And then he flew up there and saw the same thing and, like, completely, like, changed his mind. He said, okay, maybe, okay, I'm sorry, that guy was an idiot because I saw the same thing. You know, and then you had in New Mexico, or maybe it was Arizona, um, you know, that town where the guy crashed, or the guy, the, not the guy, the sheriff's deputy, came upon a craft that had landed, and there's a story that, um, that the literal marks from the aircraft, or whatever this thing was, the marks had left in the sand on the ground. They took pictures of it. I mean, they have pictures from the scene, right? And you just don't have that nowadays. Like, when was the last time we had a photograph from, you know, non-military sources of a UFO encounter? You know, it's, it's interesting that we haven't seen that recently when you would think they'd see it a lot more. You know, so we'll start with Roswell because that's really the first time that the Air Force, which was literally brand new, and had take, takes a position on 
the UFO phenomenon. And, you know, what you get in Roswell is report of a crash, some debris, some bodies, like there's some conflicting, you know, accounts. So it's really hard to track the primary source of who, you know, gave those first details to anyone. Um, but generally the story was that, you know, a crash with some bodies and re-recovered. And then you get some initial reports from some government entities about, yeah, 100% there was a crash. You know, they don't get into some stuff. And then, you know, later you get the change story with some photographs about it being a weather balloon. And so there's a lot of problems with this weather balloon story, right? Um, it's hard just to go down the list. It's kind of circular. There's not one thing that's more ridiculous than other. But I mean, you can just start with the fact that if you have a crash weather balloon, why does anyone care? You know, there's photographs that they circulate with the debris has a damn general in those photographs. Like, why is the Air Force sending a general out to take pictures with some damn weather balloon debris? Like, right, that just doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, that's that's such a mundane waste of time. Um, clearly, what you can see when you send a general out to, ha to something, there is some legitimate concern. Um, and the fact that the general himself was like in the pictures with the debris, like you can't even, you can't imagine a modern scenario where there's any kind of crash and a general just happens to show up with debris, like in a hangar where they're recreating things. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't, there's not a functional or practical purpose for a general to be there other than messaging. I mean, that's literally, you know, the only reason that you would have a general is for messaging, to try to give it some credibility, try to give your story some believability, you know? And so that, you know, it's almost deductive reasoning. It's like, well, why does your story need extra credibility if it's just this normal everyday weather balloon thing? You know, every time there's like a car crash, you don't send a general and say, yeah, this was a car crash, everyone, nothing to see here, because we all know it was a car crash. You know, it's obviously a weather balloon. Why was the Air Force sending out a general to tell everyone, hey, it's a weather balloon, nothing to see here? Um, and even the fact that there may have been some odd reports to begin with doesn't really justify sending a general out there to manage that messaging, right? People are wrong all the time about what they saw. So why do you send a general to do something mundane, right? So there's some in, and it's, it's an interesting decision, and, and it you know psychologically would lead you to believe that there was some serious concern about what was found and how it was being messaging. I mean, if you think about it, today if something crashed out in the pasture, you know, wherever you're from or where near you live or where you've driven through someday, some farmers out there's like, I got this crash. I think it's an alien craft is the air force going to send a general out there to say oh no sorry that's not an alien craft that's just a weather balloon no they're going to do that it's stupid it's nonsensical right it doesn't make any sense what would make sense if it was an alien crash 
you need to send someone out there who can make some decisions on behalf of the Air Force that have some implications and some long-term ramifications. And then that's when you send a damn general, not when your weather balloon crashes. So, you know, a couple counter arguments would be maybe the Air Force was concerned that it wasn't a weather balloon in the beginning. Maybe there's somebody in the government that, you know, gave some credence to the idea that maybe it was an alien craft. And that's why such high levels of uh, high levels of government were involved in what would otherwise be a meaningless scenario. This wasn't New York City that it happened on, right? This is New Mexico. And if you've ever been to New Mexico, there's not a lot there, which is why we test bombs there. You know, and so um, it would have been really easy to just ignore that whole scenario and, you know, do what the Department of Defense does today. Um, you know, we're not, you know, say something like, uh, we're not tracking that, you know, seemed like it was something mundane and, you know, we have no interest and, you know, we don't even have a comment on it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they also could have been something Russian, right? Who knows? It could have been something they didn't know what it was. It crashed. They found out what it was and needed to come up with a cover story. And so I think it's, I don't know, it's hard not to accept the weather balloon story as not a cover-up. It's because it doesn't make sense, right? It makes a heck of a lot more sense if it's a cover-up for something as opposed to it actually being a weather balloon. And what that something is then is kind of where the mystery is. Well, I mean, it doesn't have... Just because it's a cover-up doesn't make it an alien craft. Just because it's a cover-up doesn't mean that anything was really recovered. Or anything usable, anyway. Um, I can tell you that the Department of Defense, and even just the federal government in general, has a lot of weird shit. If you've ever been to a border area, or even driven to Key West, maybe, you may have seen these white blimps just hanging up in the air. First time I saw one, I was like, what the hell I was looking at? What is this, this big white speck? I mean, somebody could easily mistake one of those white blimps for a UFO. Especially if you never drove and got near it and saw that it was tethered to the ground. Or that it was tethered to the ground near like a federal installation. Like, okay, now you're like, okay, this is not a UFO. I mean, it is because you don't know what it is. But you know that it's somehow involved with the federal government because it's literally tethered with a cable to the ground by a federal installation, right? They know it's there because they're the ones who tied it to the ground. But cover-ups lead us to the conspiracy theory, right? Because that's what it is. That's always what it's been, that Roswell was alien and it was covered up and you have this big conspiracy about it. You know, and so earlier I said that I don't really buy conspiracy theories because of that problem of too many people knowing and having too much incentive to come clean. 